And now, here they are, the Beatles! Hi, I'm Justin Shears, and welcome to Only a Northern Song. In this series, I'll be exploring the words and the music of the Beatles, but not through the usual tracks that we all know so well. I'll be delving into my extensive collection of outtakes, home recordings and demos, alternate mixes and interviews, to shed some new light on lesser known aspects of the Beatles' recorded legacy. Whether their fans or the band themselves knew it or not, Abbey Road would be the last LP recorded by the Beatles. While the Get Back tapes languished in the vaults, waiting for someone, anyone, to dust them off and assemble an album out of them, the Beatles again turned to individual projects to keep themselves occupied. As John, George and Ringo, along with their wives, flew to the Isle of Wight to attend the rock festival there, Paul was getting used to the idea of being a new dad with the birth of daughter Mary and stayed at home with Linda. The other three were reunited with Bob Dylan and flew back to London in the chopper rented by Apple. Around this time, John wrote and demoed a brand new song which reflected his and Yoko's efforts in trying to get off heroin, which the couple had begun snorting in 1968 and had become addicted to in subsequent months. After moving into their famous white mansion at Tickinghurst Park in August 1969, John and Yoko began trying to kick their habit including tying themselves to chairs for 36 hours or more to, as they say, go cold turkey.
see me again I'll be a good boy Please make me well I promise you anything Out of this hell Cold turkey Has got me One of several demo recordings of Cold Turkey, a song which John offered to the Beatles as a potential single, but was rejected by all three of the others. It would be recorded by John, with a little help from some other friends in the months to come. In the meantime, John would be given an offer he felt that he couldn't refuse. So somebody rang us up and said there's a big show on, do you fancy coming? I thought, okay, we'll go. Girl, you know the reason. Pop festivals like people come in all shapes and sizes, and so do pop impresarios. This is the office of two of the most unlikely show business impresarios you're likely to meet in a very long time. There's no wall-to-wall carpets, no mahogany desks. The pictures on the walls are neither classic nor original. Well, it's the first pop festival in Canada, and uh, I think it's got a talent lineup that hasn't been beaten by any other pop festival of contemporary artists in this past year and a half to two years. How many uh, uh, people are you bringing in on this? How many uh, uh, talent groups? We're bringing in 28 groups and over 200 performers. Even with some of John's rock and roll heroes on the bill, including Chuck Berry, Little Richard and Gene Vincent, ticket sales were sluggish in the lead up to the Toronto Rock and Roll Revival Festival, due to be played across 12 hours on a single day at Varsity Stadium in Toronto on the 13th of September 1969, even with the doors topping the bill and due to close the show. In desperation, the concert's promoter, Toronto local John Brower, called Apple offices in London a couple of days before the show, trying to get John Lennon to fly over to be the MC for the day, as rock journalist Richie York remembers. I was in London and I'd set up interviews with George Harrison to talk about Abbey Road and with Keith Rich to talk about Let It Bleed. I'm near John and Yoko's office and they hear me outside. John calls me and it says, I've got this guy on the phone, you know, from Canada trying to talk us into coming over to a show there. 
what's it about? You know, what, who is this guy? Is he all right? John Brower is his name. But John wanted more. He would only attend the show if he could play. The only trouble was, John didn't have a band to back him. After suggesting that George Harrison could possibly cobble together a band for him, a hastily assembled group consisting of drummer Alan White and Manfred Mann bassist and lifelong friend of the Beatles, Klaus Vormann, was put together. John did ask George to join the group, but he refused, mainly because there was no set list yet, there'd be no time to rehearse, and he wasn't overly keen on playing some of the more avant-garde tracks that John and Yoko had planned for the show. But George did have a suggestion for another guitarist to back John. Eric's sort of a good friend of mine and I really dig him as a guitarist and as a guy. Because you got, you got Eric to go to Toronto with John, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I suggested Eric because I know he's, yeah. he really likes being on the road. Yeah. <laughs> self-torture yeah. <laughs> and he digs all that yeah. and um, he's very good at being put in a situation and he'll come out of it you know he'll he, he's good at improvising and um, just you know adapting a very short notice to the situation mm. Eric had been a friend of George's, and the guitarists all tend to hang out yes. together. And we were in that exuberant period, and we got this phone call from Toronto on a Friday night that there was a rock and roll revival show in Toronto with a 100,000 audience or whatever it was. We didn't have a band then. We didn't even have a, a group that had played with us for more than half a minute. Called Eric. He, I couldn't find him. I don't know where the hell he was, but I finally got through to him. And, and I said, look, there's this thing on in Toronto. You want to come? They said, OK. And so the Plastic Ono Band was formed. But time was running out, and just as rumours were circulating about John appearing at the show, the doubters were also starting to question whether this was real. Promoter John Brower recalls what happened next. Throughout the course of the week, the rumours around Toronto was that Kenny and I were full of you-know-what, that the show wasn't selling very well, and in fact it was a disaster, and that uh, it wasn't going to be any John and Yoko, and it was just not going to happen. Of course, at 4 o'clock in the morning, I get a phone call from Anthony Fawcett at Heathrow Airport. He's with Eric Clapton, Klaus Vorderman, Alan White, Mal Evans himself, and he's just spoken to John at Tittenhurst Park who told him, Yoko and I can't make it. Send flowers, love John and Yoko. <laughs> so, of course, I have visions of these flowers being laid on my grave. So I said, look, look, uh, put Eric Clapton on the phone. Clapton comes on the phone. He goes, what? And I go, look, you need to help me here. Uh, if John Lennon doesn't show up today, I have to leave my city. I have to leave my country. In fact, I'm coming over there to move in with John Lennon. I need you to call him on another phone and tell him he has to come. There's no question about it. So Clapton starts screaming at me. I don't get up at this time of the morning for anybody. I'm so goddamn mad. Lon Lennon thinks he's going to get us out here and send flowers. So anyway, they get him on the other phone, puts Clapton on with him, who starts chewing him out, yelling at him. You don't get us out of the airport. You got me so pissed. And there's a guy on the other phone. He's ruined if you don't come over there. He's coming over to move in with you. So he uh, apparently we found out from Fawcett later that Lennon was mortified that Eric Clapton was mad at him because Eric Clapton was like God, cream or the biggest thing in the planet. So, you know, uh, he, they got out of bed and they managed to get there. It worked. John, Yoko and the Plastic Ono Band were on the very next flight to Toronto, 
which gave the group a few hours to devise a set list and rehearse the numbers, just minutes before walking on stage. Now, we didn't know what to play because we'd never played together before. And on the airplane, we're running through <laughs> these oldies. So the rehearsal for that record, which turned into not a bad record, on the plane with electric guitars, so you not even acoustic, we couldn't hear, <laughs> saying, are we doing the Elvis version of Blues Ray Shoes of the Carl Perkins, you know, with the different break at the beginning, to jing jing instead of jet whatever. And that's what we did. We just wrote this list. I hadn't got the words to any of the songs. I knew Dizzy Miss Lizzie, but there's a couple about Blue Suede Shoes and a couple I hadn't done since Liverpool. After touching down in Toronto, the limos carrying the secret cargo of John and Company, escorted by a local motorcycle gang, pulled up to the backstage area around 10pm. Less than 24 hours after accepting the offer to play, the Plastic Ono Band was backstage ready to perform. John trying to calm his famous pre-show nerves by throwing up and allegedly snorting a line of cocaine. Around midnight, the introduction was made. Ladies and gentlemen, the Plastic Ono Band! Give peace a chance. Give peace a chance. We went on, we were so nervous because we didn't know what we were doing. Okay, we're just going to do numbers that we know, you know, because we've never played together before. Well, it's a one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready now, go, get go, go.
This is what we came for, really. It's uh, give peace a chance, so sing along. Yeah, let's sing. I've forgotten all those bits in between, but I know the chorus, so. First solo performance by a Beatle, three years after they had given up touring as a band and only eight months after performing for the last time as a group on the rooftop at Savile Row. Relying heavily on rock and roll standards and the Beatles' old stage numbers, as well as the world premiere of what would become the next Plastic Ono Band single, it may not have been John's most dynamic stage performance to date, but it certainly whet his appetite for playing live again. 
and with musicians other than those with whom he had shared the stage for the best part of a decade. At this point, even though he had made up his mind to leave the Beatles, and had told the members of the Plastic Ono Band of his decision, John was not keen to fuel the fires of a Beatle breakup. So this uh, probably ties in with your recent outing in Canada, where you really oh, the got rock and roll revival. Yeah, yeah. It was fantastic. See, yeah. um, what actually happened there? It was just a regular rock and roll type concert. Yeah, then Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, umpteen others, and the Plastic Ono Band, which was me, Yoko. Eric Clapton, Faust Vorman, the Manford Man, and Alan White from Alan Price, or ex-Alan Price. And you did all rock and roll songs? Well, uh, when he gets down to the nitty-gritty, I, only, I don't know the words to any songs. We ended up, our new blue suede shoes from the 50s, you know. So we did blue suede shoes, money, dizzy. Uh, we did give Peace a Chance, uh, and a new song I'd written, Cold Turkey. And uh, we really blew it, you know. It was great seeing it. It wasn't going back. It wasn't actually viable for people in your sight. Yeah, we progressed. I think we were the only progressive zombies, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so we ended up with a complete freak out with the Oko taking over, you know. And Eric and all of us just blowing the amplifiers as much as they'd go, you know. And uh, was there any rehearsal involved in this? Did you did that when you we, we tried to rehearse on the plane, but it was impossible. <laughs> we couldn't hear a thing because we didn't have any amps. And then we did one run through at the backstage, we went right through the numbers once. But the group were so funky, you know, they just picked it up. And is there any chance of this being um, a nucleus of a permanent plastic owner band? Uh, it could be, you know, but I mean, everybody sort of contracted and all things like that, I suppose, Eric and everything. But I think the plastic owner band is going to be pretty flexible enough because it's plastic. <laughs> But it is quite possible. I mean, it is. It's going to be a reality from now on. The plastic out there. Yeah, until we get fed up with it. Yeah, I'm enjoying it at the moment. Yeah. We made no plans to go to Toronto. A guy rang up, and I thought, who can, who can I get? Who will come and play live with me? You know, and they were the guys. Is there any chance of uh, of the, the Beatles playing live again? I don't know, there's always a chance, you know, but uh, the Beatles playing live is a different matter, you know, we've got that great thing to live up to, you know, yes. it's a harder gig, but just for me and Yoko to go out, you know, we can get away with anything, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I mean, everywhere in the world now, the musicians are gigging, you know, just playing together, breaking down the bit, uh, this group and that group, you know, if people get together and just howl, you know, play. Whatever. It's a new direction. Can we now expect some kind of solo John Lennon act? I don't think I'd perform solo at all, you know. If I feel like performing, I'll perform, yeah. I mean, would you call uh, Give Peace a Chance a solo performance? Maybe it is, you know, but I just do th play it by ear, you know. If I feel like doing it, I do it. Can you des describe your new act together? What is howling? I mean, get with you, you know, and there, you don't intellectualize communication, you just howl, you know. But how does a howl... I think that's uh, uh, an expression that's not so intellectualized as words, you know. It's just like... Uh, pure sound. Oh, show me, show me pure sound. The rest of September 1969 was spent promoting the Abbey Road LP before Paul took some more time off to be a dad and George and Ringo put in some studio time with other artists. This gave John the perfect opportunity to revisit Cold Turkey in Studio 3 at Abbey Road, with mostly the same Plastic Ono Band lineup 
which had premiered the song in Toronto barely two weeks earlier. With Eric Clapton and Klaus Vormann still on board, the only difference was the replacement of Alan White on drums with, you guessed it, Ringo Starr.
from the 25th of September 1969, an early working version of Cold Turkey. Released on the Green Apple label, with a helpful printed instruction to play loud, the single peaked at number 14 on the UK charts, slipping to number 15 the following week. Along with Britain's involvement in the war raging in Biafra, and Britain's support of the United States in the Vietnam War, Cold Turkey's lack of chart success, perhaps slightly tongue-in-cheek, was a reason given by John Lennon MBE when returning his royal medal to the Queen. Uh, as a protest against violence and war, especially Britain's involvement in Biafra, which most of the British public aren't aware of, because all the press, TV and radios slant all the news from Biafra. All the stuff I learnt on Biafra from journalists off the cuff folks is a different story. And I began to be ashamed of being British. And I'm a patriotic nationalist, if the truth will out. And Yoko can vouch for that. I'm always fighting about what Britain invented radar and what all the different things we've done. But every day I just began to worry a bit more about it. And I was going to send the MBE back anyway. I could have done it privately, but the press would have found out anyway. He would have been here a week later instead. Less impact. Well, that's it for this episode. Join us next time as we explore how 1969 wrapped up for the Beatles. Until next time, 